Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by, if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 113, Spies. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Once more, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I'll admit that I feel a little silly just saying that. I feel silly just saying today's proverb. It's a very hard proverb to take seriously, given the sort of person that you're apt to hear saying it. It seems to me that the most common sort of person to say that proverb is a young man, maybe a young man who likes to think he knows a lot about the business world. Some guy with Oakley sunglasses and a buzz cut who's attempting to appropriate the wisdom of Sun Tzu or Machiavelli to the corporate world. And he's too young to even have enemies. The idea that this guy has enemies is presumptuous, self-aggrandizing. And there's this whole shtick where people try to incorporate the art of war, Sun Tzu's The Art of War, into all kinds of aspects of life, corporate world, any sort of business. And it always just seems absurd to me. 
So if you're already having trouble taking today's proverb seriously, join the club. Me too. Nonetheless, I have been thinking a lot about enemies lately. And I've been thinking about enemies because I just finished teaching Pride and Prejudice four times. That's what my fall has looked like thus far. I read the entirety of Pride and Prejudice out loud three times to three different sections of sophomores. And then I taught a class on Pride and Prejudice for parents as well. And you remember the book rightly if you're wondering what Pride and Prejudice and keeping your enemies closer have to do with each other. Because there's not a lot about enemies in Pride and Prejudice. There's very little. Most of it, most of that novel is about friendship. There are some little antagonistic relationships. And perhaps only one relationship that goes far enough to be called a full-blown enemy relationship, and that's Wickham and Darcy. Although by the end of the novel, Mr. Darcy has become Mr. Wickham's benefactor. Mr. Wickham still seems to be the enemy of Darcy, whereas Darcy is always helping him out anyway. Well, apologies if you haven't read Pride and Prejudice. You ought to. It's very good. I'm imagining that a lot of readers have read Pride and Prejudice. Outside that one full-blown enemy relationship, Wickham and Darcy, there's all these other little antagonistic relationships that seem on the cusp of becoming enemy relationships. Caroline Bingley is Elizabeth's antagonist. Then there's Mr. Collins. And Mr. Collins is this tall, awkward, bumbler, a self-aggrandizing priest who speaks too highly of his boss and patron, Lady Catherine de Berg. And Mr. Collins is generally causing trouble wherever he goes or making a fool of himself. There's a scene late in Pride and Prejudice. After Mr. Bennett's youngest daughter, Lydia, has run off perhaps to elope, perhaps to just live in sin with Mr. Wickham. When Mr. Collins hears about it and writes a letter to Mr. Bennett, who is a distant relationship, uh, a distant relation of his. And Mr. Collins, in his typically pompous style, tells Mr. Bennett that he has heard about Lydia. He has heard what shame the Bennett family is being dragged into. Mr. Collins says that he has heard that Mr. Bennett raised Lydia in a very indulgent way and that it's all now coming back on him. And he almost gloats, Collins does, at the fact that he was very nearly attached to the Bennett family. A year earlier, he proposed to a different Bennett sister and was turned down. And he rejoices at having dodged a bullet. I was almost attached to the Bennett family. Thank goodness I married someone else. And the reader can't get to Collins' letter without burning in anger that this man who lacks any self-awareness and thinks so highly of himself, 
so sanctimonious, is given the additional triumph of gloating over the father of the woman who rejected his proposal. But what's interesting about that letter is that nothing that Mr. Collins says, almost nothing that he says to Mr. Bennett is false. Mr. Bennett is largely responsible for what has become of Lydia, his youngest daughter. He did raise her in a very indulgent fashion. He never told her no, because it was easier to tell her yes. And now it's all come back on him. Now, the fact that he did not exert himself and trouble himself to teach his youngest daughter some discipline means that his whole life is falling apart. The family name, the Bennett family name, is drugged through the mud. Mr. Bennett's other four daughters are going to have a very difficult time getting married now that the family is attached to the shame. And, well, now he's just going to have to exert himself a whole lot more than he ever would have had to do had he just raised his daughter properly. None of Mr. Bennett's friends are going to tell him this, though. None of his friends are going to tell him, well, you get what you deserve. You didn't raise her well, and so she doesn't behave well. It's a one-to-one -one correlation. None of his friends are going to say that. It takes an antagonist to say that sort of thing. It takes someone who's unattached, someone who has no reason to be sentimental, to give him the honest truth, the weapons-grade truth, the painful truth. And enemies can generally be relied upon for the truth in a way that friends can't. So keep your friends close and your enemies closer is often just taken to mean you need to keep tabs on your enemies. It's not taken to mean that your enemies might have something very useful to offer you. Your enemies can provide a profound service for you in their unsentimental, unfeeling critiques of you. Your enemies are able to tell you things that your friends are not. It's interesting to think about keeping your enemies closer than your friends. Imagine living with your enemies. Imagine, like, take some person that in your past at work tried to ruin your reputation, your career, maybe ruin your whole life. Take someone who slandered you, someone who falsely accused you, berated you. And imagine living with that person. What good might it do you to live with such a person? There's a fascinating movie that came out 16, 17 years ago called The Lives of Others. And The Lives of Others is set in the 1980s. And it's about a playwright who lives in East Germany 
whose plays are monitored by the Stasi, by the secret government police. And after a particularly uh, poignant play of this playwrights opens, and some Stasi agents detect an anti-government theme in it, this playwright is put under surveillance. And there's a Stasi agent that is assigned to monitor everything the playwright does. They bug his house, they tap his phone. And this Stasi agent lives in an apartment over the playwright. And he just listens to the man's entire life. He listens to him wake up in the morning, talk with his girlfriend. He listens to him cook breakfast, make phone calls. He listens to everything this man does. So the playwright doesn't know anything about this. The playwright carries on as he always has. But he's got this man who's about his age living upstairs, listening to everything that he says. And what's sort of remarkable, it's a remarkable film, you should see it, is that the beauty of the playwright's life slowly reveals itself to the man who is eavesdropping on him. And while the agent upstairs has it in mind to make a career for himself and bust this famous playwright for being opposed to the government, the longer he listens in, the more afraid he is to harm this man because his life seems so good. So he listens and he takes notes and the longer he sits there listening, the more he becomes resigned to help this man. He becomes convinced that the government the playwright opposes ought to be opposed. And he has some problems at work himself. But the whole thing ultimately kind of coalesces into this moment where the playwright is going to be confronted by the government. And the Stasi agent decides to help the playwright. I won't tell you the whole ending. It's all rather unexpected. But ever since I saw the film, I've thought about what it would be like to have a Stasi agent listening to me. Now, I don't mean a Stasi agent. I mean, what would it be like if I lived with my enemies keeping tabs on me? And you can imagine your enemies in different ways, right? There are some people who just hate very particular things about you. 
There are some people who have long-standing grudges against you because they believe you mistreated them. How would you live differently if someone who believed you to be cruel and tyrannical was listening to everything you said? How would you practice your religion if someone who didn't take your religion seriously was listening and watching everything you did? How would that change your level of piety? And you can imagine um, a secularist or an atheist listening to you, but you could also imagine someone who was very opposed to your particular tradition of Christianity listening to everything that you did. If you're Catholic, you could imagine some uh, tenaciously anti-Catholic Reformed Presbyterian listening to everything you did. Or vice versa. How would it change the way that you prayed? How would you alter the way that you had dinner, the way that you spoke to your kids, the way that you spoke to your wife, if someone who thought you were a complete fraud was listening in on everything that you said? How would you conduct yourself at the office if someone who believed you were a complete slacker was looking over your shoulder covertly all day? These thoughts sort of take me back to a proverb that I did at some point in the last two years, which is from George Herbert, who said the best revenge is a life well lived. That if you really want to get back at your enemies, you will live well. There's nothing that vexes your enemies more than when you are happy and content with your life as you are true to your principles. Your enemies want your principles to fail you. They don't want your principles to work. They don't want your character to work. They don't want your personality to work. They want all these things to fail you. If you really want to show up your enemies, your principles have to do you some good. If your principles aren't doing you any good, your enemies are right. The thing is, you really don't have to fantasize about your enemies living with you. They do. You have enemies that live with you. You have friends that live with you too. The angels that defend you live with you. The demons that tempt you live with you. You are surrounded by spiritual friends and spiritual enemies.
Then there's your children to consider as well. And there's the question of whether you are going to live in such a way as to turn your children into friends or into enemies when they grow up and move away. Because your children are two people. They have two separate realities. They're two separate individuals bound up in every child. There's the child that lives in your house and depends on you. And then there's the child that is independent of you, that is simultaneously growing inside of the child that you see in front of you. You are raising, if you have one child, you are raising two children. You are raising your child now and you are raising your child later. Are you raising your children in such a way that when they are independent, when they are eavesdropping on everything that you did to them when they were younger, they will vindicate you? When your children are 29 and they're recalling every Christmas, every Easter, every Sunday, every day of the week that you raised them, and they're evaluating it all, did you raise them in such a way that they will carry on in the best parts of how you raise them? Or are you raising them so that they will turn their backs on all of that? If your child's six, your child is 36. You're raising a future 36-year-old who is completely autonomous, does not need you for anything, and that 36-year-old is looking back at how you raised the 6-year-old. And that 36-year-old is evaluating your religion, your God, your ethics, your politics. Are you raising your kids to believe what you believe when they are free to believe something else? When your children are 36 and they become like the Stasi agent in the attic and begin reviewing everything from their own childhoods. Will they side with you? Will the beauty of your life keep them in the church? Will it keep them pious? When your children don't need your love, when they don't need your way of life and they are free to return to it or run from it. Will your children have enough good memories stored up that they will come back? Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.